0: Our scripture reading today is Psalm 72, 1 through 14, and this is found on page 485 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to have a Bible, so please just take that one home from us. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Saba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, it's good to see each one of you again, and thank you for being with us today. And as we look at this passage in Psalm 72, I'd love to pray as we enter into this time reflecting on these words. So Father in heaven, thank you for inspiring these words so many thousands of years ago. And we pray that today, now at this time, that you would bring them to life for us, uh, that we would know your presence in this room. You are with us. Um, but through your word would we would be aware of your nearness to us today. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our King, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I want to begin by reading you uh, the opening lines from one of the best Christmas books ever. It says, The Herdmans were absolutely the worst kids in the history of the world. They lie and stole and smoked cigars, even the girls, and talked dirty and hit little kids and cussed their teachers and took the name of the Lord in vain and set fire to Fred Shoemaker's old, broken-down tool house. And those are the opening words from The Best Christmas Pageant Ever by Barbara Robinson. And Rachel read that book to our kids last Christmas, and then together as a family, we watched the movie. And if you've never read that book, it's only about 120 pages. It would be a great read, uh, whether you have kids or not. If you have kids, they'd love hearing it read aloud. But even if you don't have kids, uh, it's a great uh, little story. The Herdmans were absolutely the worst kids in the history of the world. And this whole town that they live in, it it hates them. They're mean, they're undisciplined, uh, they are dirty, they are poor. Nobody likes these kids, but they find out that this church is putting on this Christmas pageant. And the pageant is sort of the pride of the town, and it's sort of a display of holy reverence with, you know, lots of clean, well-behaved children. But Barbara writes this, she says, the Herdmans didn't know anything about the Christmas story. They knew that Christmas was Jesus' birthday, but everything else was news to them. The shepherds, the wise men, the stable, the crowded inn. But even so, they want to be a part of this pageant. They want to have a role to play. And so they literally, in the story, bully their way not only into the pageant, but into also taking all the lead parts of the pageant. And while they're at the church, they steal money out of the offering. They smoke in the church bathrooms. Uh, they drink the communion juice. They terrorize the other children. And it's a pretty great story. And you see, at face value, the Herdmans are the neediest people in that church. Their lives are a mess. Uh, but you witness throughout the story and in the movie as well that the magic, the power, of experiencing the story of Jesus in all of its wholeness for the first time, as well as the shock of it. Because sometimes we're so familiar with the story, we forget how shocking it is. Here, here's another one of my favorite quotes. It goes like this. I couldn't believe it. Among all the other things, the Herdmans were famous for never sitting still, never paying attention to anyone, teachers, parents, their own, or anyone else's, the truant officer of the police. Yet here they were, eyes glued on my mother." And talking, taking in every word. And what's that? They would yell whenever they didn't understand the language. And when my mother read about there being no room in the inn, Imogene Herman's jaw dropped, and she sat up in her seat and said, "'My God, not even for Jesus?' See, the herdmen's actually wanted to change the story and the pageant so that they could beat up the innkeeper, execute King Herod, and uh, get the wise men to bring better gifts. Because they they say, oil, what kind of a cheap king hands out oil as a present? You get better presents from the firemen on Christmas. (laughs) And when they get to the part about Jesus being wrapped in swaddling clothes and put in a feed box, (laughs) Imogen asks, you mean they tied him up? and put him in a feed box? Where was child welfare? (laughs) So they're, they're just appalled by the indignity of the story. But they're also caught up by the beauty and the glory of it. And think about that. Why is it that those people who are most in need are the most likely to recognize Jesus? You see, we need a king who is for us not only when we're strong, not only when we have everything together, not only when we have it all figured out, but we need a king who is with us, who is for us, even when, perhaps especially when we are vulnerable, when we're needy, when we are weak, when we're not at our best, we need a king who is for us, even when we are against the king. And Advent, the season of Adwin, which is these four weeks leading up to Christmas, the season of, of the church where we're preparing for Christmas, reminds us afresh that we have a king who is for us. We have a king who is for us even in, especially in our weakness and in our vulnerability. So I'd invite you to turn to Psalm 72 because we get a picture of this king in Psalm 72. So grab one of the Pew Bibles. Even if you just have your phone with you, you can just Google Psalm 72. You can pull it up that way, but I'd love for you to follow along in the psalm with me. And in Psalm 72, we see that this king is for us in our need because he knows the needy. This king knows the needy. But before we get too far into that point, I just want to even ask the question, an important question, why are we even talking about a king in the first place this morning? Well, for one, it's the language of the passage, right? So the verse one, it opens up with this line, give the king, give the king your justice, oh God. But then it's sort of like, okay, well, what does an ancient poem, an ancient song about a king have to do with us in the 21st century who live in a country that was sort of founded on the idea of not having a king, right? That's, you know, America was like, we're going to set up a different kind of government. We're not going to have a king anymore. How does this relate to us? And this brings us to kind of the second key reason this morning, and that is that Christians, whether they act like it or not, and we don't always act like it all the time, but Christians have a king. Christians have a king. That Christians, and especially during the season of Advent, remember that at whatever time or place that they live, under whatever form of government they live, that they are ultimately citizens of a kingdom headed by the true king of the universe. And in this series, we're calling it the promised king, we are looking at these ancient songs in the Bible known as the Psalms, which express this this longing and hope for that king to come who would actually rule with goodness and justice, who wouldn't succumb to abuses of power, who wouldn't be content just to sort of have his own comfort and security ensured. In short, a king who could do what kings and humans were always meant to be. Because you see, what we find in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is that human beings made in God's image were meant to be God's rulers with him in the world, that they were to image him in the world, that they were to be his representatives, that they were to rule in wisdom over his good creation. And yet when human beings rebelled against God, choose to define right and wrong on their own, to seek wisdom apart from him, it introduces sin and chaos into the world. And ever on from that moment, we have been longing for a kind of king who could be the Genesis kind of one and two picture of a human who can actually be entrusted with God's power. And so when we come to the book of Psalms, if you were here last week when Pastor Taylor did a great job of leading us through this, we find there are two Psalms that open up the whole collection of Psalms. There's 150 Psalms in the Bible, and Psalms one and two stand as an introduction together. Psalm one is a description of this kind of human, this, this ideal human who meditates on God's word day and night, who's faithful to him, who follows him. And then Psalm 2, which is what the passage we looked at last week, is this picture of this ideal king who God sets on the throne, who rules over the nations. And so what Psalms does is it sets us up looking for the Psalm 1 human who can be the Psalm 2 king. As people, we are looking for a Psalm 1 human who can be the Psalm 2 king. And when we get to Psalm 72, we get another description of a Psalm 1 human who has become the Psalm 2 king, a king who is for us in our need, a king who is with us not only in our best moments but in our weakness, and our vulnerable moments. So I'm going to read a couple of these verses for you, and notice the words that are bolded on the screen. This is Psalm 72 beginning in verse 2 may he judge your people with righteousness and let your poor and your poor with justice let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness may he defend the cause of the poor of the people give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor the oppressor now even you hear this language be uh, of judgment on people, and we, typically we think of that language of judgment as a negative thing, but if you are a person who is weak and vulnerable, who's being taken advantage of, to have a king, a judge who is going to give you justice is the best news in the world. And that's what this, this king is for us, one who is for us in the midst of our needs, who's going to bring justice for those who are weak and those who are oppressed. Now depending on your stage of life, uh, depending on where you're at this morning in your life, you may not feel particularly vulnerable. Maybe you're like, I've, I've got a good job. I've got a, a warm home. We've got food in the fridge. Like, I, I'm, I feel like I'm doing okay. I'm not in a particularly needy or vulnerable spot. But you know, to be a human being is to be vulnerable. Every single one of us at one point in our life was incredibly vulnerable. You think about every human baby was born. is was born utterly helpless, who without constant care is going to die, right? Who needs to be fed and washed and clothed. They can't do any of that on their own. So if you're sitting in this room, you have been vulnerable. You have needed others to care for you, to to feed you, to watch over you, to protect you. Every single one of us. And and if we live long enough, we, we return to those same places again. Where we need others to care for us, even in the very basic needs of life. To be a human being is to be vulnerable, is to be need. And that's not a that's not a bad thing. It's actually what it means to be a creature and not the creator. Right? We were made as creatures to be dependent on our creator. I want to read you a quote from a pastor and theologian named John Stott. He worked in the UK. And when he was in his 80s, he he wrote a book that was published uh, shortly before he died at age 90. And so in his 80s, he's reflecting on vulnerability and dependence and listens to what he writes. I've got it on the screen here. He says, The truth is that we are sinners who are dependent on God for his mercy and for his continuing grace. He says, To attempt to live without him is precisely what is meant by sin. To be unwilling to acknowledge our status as creatures who are dependent on God's goodness and mercy and grace is at the heart of what wrecks the world in the first place, our own individual lives, as well as the world on a macro scale. Our king knows our neediness. He isn't embarrassed by it, and he longs to meet us in it. And so a key question for each of us this morning is, where do you need the king right now? If it's true that as humans we are vulnerable, that <laughs> we are in need, where do you need the king right now? Because it's our need that connects us to him. So when you're afraid, go to him. Uh, when you feel shame or embarrassment, go to him. When you feel weak, go to him. When you're stressed or even moving into that category is utterly overwhelmed, go to him. When you're writing a sermon and you're stuck and you don't know where to go next, go to him. That's one's kind of specific to me, but that's where I was at when I was writing this week. I love how the song, O Holy Night, expresses this beautifully. Uh, we're going to sing that song later on in the service. But one of my favorite verses in O Holy Night goes like this. The king of kings lay thus in a lowly manger. Then listen to this line. In all of our trials, born to be our friend. This king was born to be our friend in the midst of trial and struggle. He was born for that. He knows our need to our weakness is no stranger. That's who this king is. In all our trials, born to be a friend. The God who made us does not stand far off from us. He has come near to us in Jesus. He knows our need. He sympathizes with our weakness. He is one of us. Jesus is the Psalm 1 man who is the Psalm 2 king and the Psalm 72 king who knows what it is to be vulnerable. He was born as a baby, utterly helpless. He was born to poor parents who were themselves vulnerable. And actually, our weakness connects us to the king's priorities and his mission. If King Jesus meets us in our weakness, then we, as subjects of his kingdom, become those who in the King's name are able to be for the vulnerable who are around us. In fact, the more in touch we are with our own vulnerability, our own weakness, our own need, the better able we are to serve others. Because then we're not approaching that from a place of of superiority or a savior complex, or I have something that you need uh, and and I can give that to you. But actually, we're just coming to others and saying, I'm weak and needy and dependent and vulnerable and I've found a king. Come find him with me. But that's not all. There's there's more in the psalm of who this king is for us. Not only is he for us in our need because he knows our, our neediness, he also finds those who are needy precious. He finds those who are needy precious. And you see this in verses 12 through 14, especially, he doesn't just tolerate our neediness, he actually finds it precious, he finds it enduring, it draws him to us. Now, that's not typically how I think of neediness or vulnerability that, or, or that of others, right? That the, the more needy, the more vulnerable you are, that, that's, that's, the worse off you are. The more dependent you are, and that's a bad thing, the less precious you are. But look at this line in, in verse 14. And I'm actually going to read 13 just to give you a little context. But then listen to verse 14. It says, he has pity on the weak and the needy. He saves the lives of the needy. And then verse 14, from oppression and violence, he redeems their life. And then this line, precious is their blood in his sight. Precious is their blood in his sight. Now that may sound a little bit odd to us, even in, in, in poetry. Precious is their blood? Is Jesus like a vampire? Does he want their blood? What, what's going on here? But the idea of this is that our blood is our very life. And so this is why in the Old Testament law, um, Jews were not allowed to eat the, the blood of an animal because it, it was the very life of the animal that belonged to God. It's the picture of this is, this is what sustains your life. It's the essence of your life. And so for him to say that their, their blood is precious in his sight means that their, their life, their very life is precious to him. And this is the picture that we get of a king who loves us that our very lives are precious to him. This week was we were lighting the candle of love that what motivated Jesus to come was not obligation, um, but his deep love for us. And actually his love for us begins to make us lovely as we allow that to come into our lives. So here's the question. Have you called out to your king in your need? And again, I don't want to feel like I'm a burden. I don't want to to do it to myself. I, I, I want to be able to not be dependent on anyone, to not be in debt to anyone, to handle it myself. But in your need, you're precious to him. I love what Dane Ortland says in Gentle and Lowly. He writes this. He says, Jesus' yoke is kind and his burden is light. That's what, <laughs> that is, his yoke is a non-yoke and his burden is a non-burden. What helium does to a balloon, Jesus' yoke does to his followers. We are buoyed along in life by his endless gentleness, supremely accessible lowliness. He doesn't simply meet us in our place of need. He lives in our place of need. He never tires of sweeping us up into his tender embrace. It is his very heart. It's what gets him out of bed in in the morning. And again, I, I don't think we like to think of ourselves as people who are in need but I'm learning more and more that it is our vulnerability that makes us better human beings because we are creatures. We were meant to be vulnerable. We were meant to be dependent. It's only when we're actually willing to admit that we don't have it all together, that, that we, we actually need help from others. We need wisdom for others. We need the assistance of others that we can get off the exhausting treadmill of self-reliance and discover the preciousness of our lives, apart from our accomplishments, apart from our successes, apart from our failures, it's not our strength that impresses this king. It's our willingness to call out to him, and our need that unites us to him. And here's the thing: once we're united to this king, then you can never, you can never be taken away from him. Once you're united to him he will be with you now and forever. And that's what we see in these final verses, that this king is with us now and forever. And I, I want to read you these verses because they express in these verses, I want you to listen to them in a moment. They express a desire for this king to live a long life, to, for his, his reign to prosper and flourish, and for his memory to, to long endure. And these are the kinds of things that have been expressed about human kings for centuries. And listen to how this This psalm expresses it. This is beginning in verse 15. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually. The blessings invoke for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. And on the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruits be like Lebanon. And may the people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. And then verse 17. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, and all the nations call him blessed. And again, these are the kinds of words that have been said about and hoped for for kings all throughout our history. Right? Long live the king. Long live the queen. Something we hear in literature all the time. But even the very best of merely human rulers have their reigns ended by death. You think about Queen Elizabeth, one of the longest reigning monarchs in history. In fact, this will be the first Christmas without Queen Elizabeth on the throne in 70 years. The last time there was a Christmas and Queen Elizabeth was not on the throne, Harry Truman was president of the United States. Isn't that amazing? 70 years of reign. But at age 94, after reigning for 70 years, she, too, succumbed to death, just like every other merely human ruler. And you may have noticed at the top of this psalm, there's a little sort of superscription in, in your Bible. It says, of Solomon. And there's a number of those in the Psalms, right? They'll say of David or a Psalm of David, those kind of things. It's a little note to us as readers about who this is really to. Now that language of of, is, it's kind of, it's vague, right? So it could mean that this was a Psalm written by Solomon, that he actually wrote this Psalm. Or maybe it was a Psalm that is written about Solomon. Like it, it was, this Psalm was written uh, for a celebration of his coronation. Um, but regardless, this is a picture of what was wished for in Solomon's reign. And we had such high hopes for this king. David was supposed to be kind of the pinnacle picture of what a king was meant to be. And in many ways, all the kingly tradition of Israel looks back to David as sort of, "This this this was the best. And when David is anointed and he, he waits, and he waits for Saul's demise, and he doesn't take that into his own hands, and he defeats the enemies, and he, in so many ways, is everything that we hope the Psalm 1 king, who can be this Psalm 2 king, the Psalm 1 human, can be the Psalm 1 king. He, he's so close to that, and we, he, we know he spectacularly fails, and he commits adultery with Bathsheba, and then he has her husband murdered, and He can't build the temple. He shed too much blood. But then the author sets us up in the story for maybe Solomon, maybe David's son, Maybe he will be the Psalm 1 human who can be the Psalm 2 king. Maybe he will be the one who can bring in this this kingdom. Maybe he can be that human partner that God has been looking for who can trust the power to. And and again, if you read Solomon's story in in 1 and 2 Chronicles and and you read how this unfolds, you you have this such great hopes because Solomon uh, is approached by God in a dream and he's offered whatever you want Solomon you can have. And instead of sort of taking matters into his own hands and wishing for, for riches or for wealth or uh, you know, a, a huge rule. He simply asked God for wisdom, which is what humans were supposed to do. This was, again, back in Genesis chapter 2, the idea of the tree of the knowledge and good of evil, that they were supposed to trust God to define right and wrong, to define wisdom for them. And now we have a king who's asking God for wisdom. Yes, this is what this was always supposed to be. Our hopes are so high, and Solomon starts off so well, and his reign goes so well, and then he ends up marrying these literally hundreds of women to form political alliances. He stops trusting God and he starts worshiping the gods of these other nations as a result. And he too fails. And the rest of Israel's story is just like it just goes way downhill from there, of their kings. And so we're just left aching at the end of the Old Testament for where is this Psalm one human? who can be the psalm Two king and in advent we remember that in bethlehem that king was born that he has come and he will come again king jesus the king who is for us not only in our strength but in our weakness a king who will not be defeated by death but who actually overcame death who defeated death once and for all the once and coming king jesus you know, and when this king comes, when he comes to reign and he gives an invitation to his kingdom, listen to who he describes who his kingdom is for. This is Matthew chapter 5. Listen to Jesus in defining who his kingdom is for. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Uh, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. These are the kind of people who are welcomed into Jesus' kingdom. Being poor and needy in spirit is not an obstacle to entering Jesus' kingdom, far from the opposite of true. It's actually our need that qualifies us to be a part of this kingdom. When this king came to be with us, he didn't come to a palace in Rome. He came to a village in this backwater part of the Roman Empire. He was born to a teen couple, no one special, no place special, by the world standards, but to him they were precious. And so Mary, his mother, could sing, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Why? Because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. And, And he has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted who? The lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. This, friends, is a picture of the Psalm 72 king who we've been longing for. Your king is for you. He's with you. And all you have to bring is your need. In fact, the only thing, friends, the only thing that can keep you from this king is a stubborn unwillingness to admit that you're in need. That's the only thing that can keep you from his kingdom. It's to say, you know what? I don't need him. I don't need this. We have a king who is for us, in our need. So come back with me for one final moment to the Herdmans. During the pageant, one of the polite, more holy-looking children whispers, I don't think it's very nice to burp the baby Jesus as if he had colic. Do you suppose he could have had colic? I said, I don't know, why not? And I didn't. He could have had colic or been fussy or hungry like any other baby. After all, that was the whole point of Jesus, that he came, that he didn't come down in a cloud like something out of Amazing Comics, but that he was born and lived a real person. And that's why Imogen Herdman, who plays Mary, stands there toward the end crying, because she realizes this, that Jesus came as a real person for her. Church, all you have to do is bring your need It's why Gladys Herdman, the angel of the Lord, she has the only speaking part in the whole play, says this, she made the most of it. Hey, unto you a child is born, she hollered, as if it was for sure the best news in the world. Church, we have a king who is for us in our need, who knows us in our need, who finds our neediness not embarrassing or repulsive, but precious, who promises to be with you both now and forever. And all you have to do is bring your need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I am so grateful that you don't ask me to bring you anything except for my need of you. So I pray for each of us that this week, that we, when we feel those moments of vulnerability, when we feel embarrassed, when we feel ashamed, when we feel awkward, or just afraid or overwhelmed, that we would use those as reasons not to hide from you, but to bring those to you and to meet you, knowing that you live in those places, you came for those places, that you want to meet us in those places. I pray that we would be a kind of community, a kind of church with that is what characterizes us as a people. We pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.